offering a Dharma talk and hearing one are both practices. It's interesting, you know, sometimes we think we have to like try hard to remember everything that's said. But really, a lot of times, the, the main message is a kind of transmission. So if you don't remember all the ins and outs at the uh, end of the talk, you shouldn't be concerned. Just be attentive and open if, and incline the mind towards uh, interest. Tonight I'm going to offer a talk on a particular quality of mind that I particularly love. And as it happens, I had an opportunity to offer a mini exploration of this to the Spirit Rock staff earlier in the week. And it also so happens that in the Brahma Viharas today and tomorrow we're going to be working with this quality. And maybe I'll just start with a a story to give you some image because that's part of how we grasp things, right? Part of how we learn. A number of years ago I had the experience of my younger sister sending me a video that she'd taken in her home. And my younger sister lives with my mother, who is now 98. So the video my sister sent me was my mother looking at a computer screen. So this was shot from behind. Looking at a computer screen. And in the computer screen was my mother's great granddaughter, her first one, who was maybe one, maybe a little younger than one, and she was in one of those chairs things with wheels that's got a tray on the front. And this particular vehicle was constructed so that if you push down on this bulb thing on it, this red bulb thing on it, music would play. So music would play on this. So Jen was pushing down on this thing and then the music would play and the manufacturer had good taste because it was the Beatles. So, and what, what was being played was, baby, you can drive my car, bum, 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 bum. Yes, you're gonna be a star, bum, 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 bum. Baby, you can drive my car, and baby, I love you. Boo, 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 yeah. So this is, this is going on, right? This is going on. And so Jen is like rocking out. She's like, oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and my mother is watching this, and she's laughing. She's just like, she's laughing. Look, she says, look at her go, look at her go. <laughs> so I'm watching this, you know, like a, a couple of uh, screens remote. I'm watching this going on, and I just felt so happy. It was like a triple play. Triple play, right? It's like, I'm get Jen's happy. My mother's happy watching Jen. I'm happy watching both of them. So I offer this story because this is an example of mudita, empathetic joy. I mean, it's not me in the vehicle. <laughs> It's me seeing, seeing the happiness there, the happiness of the others, the others. And it was very pure. 
there there wasn't any anything particularly expensive about it there wasn't anything particularly ingestible about it or nothing there to really acquire and yet my mind was so happy and their minds were happy and there you go and it was all for free So we've been practicing the Brahma-viharas, right? The first one is metta, you know, and that's the platform for all of them. This first basic cultivation of, of goodwill, where we incline the mind to offer the phrases of goodwill to, to beings. You know, may you be happy, may you be safe, may you be healthy, may you be at ease. And then, with compassion, we recognize the difficulty and strain and suffering. May you be free from suffering and the causes of suffering. And sometimes compassion, because it brings us into that direct connection with the reality of suffering can feel hmm, a little somber maybe, a little heavy sometimes. And metta itself, if you look at what the phrases are, may you be happy, may you be safe, may you be well, may you live at ease, Maybe in a certain kind of way, especially in some of those classically offered phrases, may you be free from danger, may you be free from mental suffering, may you be free from physical suffering, may you be well and happy. Maybe in a certain kind of way, Meta's got an acknowledgement in there that it's not necessarily like that. Right? We're offering this. If everybody was like completely tanked up, you know, with all of this in a stable kind of way, maybe we wouldn't, wouldn't be doing exactly that. So these first two, both I think, one in a very direct way, compassion, and the other in an indirect way, metta, there, there's an acknowledgement there of the precarity, if you want to put it that way, of, of human existence. And not just human, of course. Precarious. Now we get to meta. The mind is inclining towards happiness and gladness in the recognition of somebody else's happiness, gladness, good fortune, well-being, etc., So here we're actually turning the mind towards recognizing the happiness that we have as human beings that that can be available to us, that we can know. So even though the Buddha's path is clear about the fact that we don't find lasting happiness in uh, conditioned things, it's not like a prescription to view life as, you know, oh, it's all bad, it's all sad, it's all like tragic, there's like, oh, nothing, nothing's worth anything, right? It's not, that's not uh, the communication. It's not aversion towards uh, our human lives or towards conditioned reality. Because we recognize yeah, it is possible to be happy. It is, is possible to have sources of wholesome gladness. The, in fact, there are practices in the suttas that talk about gladdening the mind. Gladdening the mind is a skillful thing to do, a useful thing to do. So you don't have to be always wrapped around the axle of dukkha. Right? The Buddha sees dukkha as 
uh, a truth, but it's not a path to dukkha. It's a path to freedom from suffering. It's a path to, uh, to liberate the mind. And so things that are, that are wholesome and onward leading and deeply pleasant are very much part of it. And mudita has the, the capacity to really uh, strengthen our recognition of this. So this mudita, as I described it, is a naturally occurring state. When I was telling that story, I saw at least some folks here hearing it directly were kind of like getting into it, <laughs> right? You're kind of like getting into the getting into the story. Your imagination kind of caught it and recognized why it would be joyful. So, you know, this is an acknowledgement that, you know, people can be happy. <laughs> we can be happy. It's not like a wrong to be happy or for other people to be happy as well. And we can share in the happiness of others by allowing it to register in our own hearts and minds in an approving way. So this practice is turning towards the happiness of others with this wish that their happiness or good fortune continue. So, you know, the quality itself is called empathetic joy, sympathetic joy, altruistic joy. These are some of the English translations. But it means delighting in the happiness or uh, well-being of others. Being glad yourself at the gladness of others. So in order to cultivate this, we need to let the happiness and well-being of others register. So in a sense, we have to, you know, register it, uh, endorse it, cheer it on, we need to approve of this in their experience. So let me give you some other examples of um, places where you might be able to imagine mudita arising. These are just things that I've noticed for myself. Seeing someone enjoy a meal you prepared. Right? Say it's some, some, it somebody's birthday. They think everybody forgot. You have them over to your house. You're playing dumb. And then you come out with the, their favorite and the cake. So that's generosity on your part, but you're practicing mudita when you see their their delight, right? Their appreciation, their happiness at uh, being remembered. Or maybe watching your child get married to someone you believe is good for them. You know, hearing, hearing a friend got a job that they really needed and that you know they'll be good at. Um, somebody, seeing somebody respected in the community finally getting the recognition that they deserve. having somebody's health issue resolve and their relief arise, the experience of their relief, that, that sense like, oh man, dodged a, dodged a bullet. Oh, I'm so happy for you. Watching your uh, niece score a goal in the big soccer game. 
seeing children running and playing on the playground, chasing each other around, screaming. (laughs) You know how they do that. A friend excitedly announcing they're going to be a grandmother. Mary's having a baby. I had a mudita experience once, just coming off a a picture that a boarding kennel sent to me of my dog. So, you know, they, they like to, like, take pictures of your pets while they're there to show they're having a good time. <laughs> and they should come back again. I think that's the bottom line. And don't call us asking <laughs> if they're okay. So, anyway, so they sent me this picture of my dog, Kevin Lotto. That's his name. And he was born on this very day, born on St. Patrick's Day. And it seemed too sacrilegious to name him Patrick, so I named him Kevin instead, kept him kind of in the ethnic sort there. But so so this is a dog is an Airedale Terrier. So this is like probably fifty-five pound dog. And they're very active and they're very strong and they're very playful. So Kevin Lotto actually has a tail that normally is like a hook like this that he carries high over his back. So they sent this picture, and there are a number of dogs out in this big, big fenced area for their playtime. So he was in the front of the group as they were running. And you could tell by the picture they were running like full out, like full out. And he was in the front, and he was smiling. He was so happy, and his ears were back. From the wind, presumably, his ears were back. And his tail, instead of being hooked like this, was straight. Straight behind him. And I knew he'd had a really good time when he came home, and he, his tail was limp. He couldn't wag it. He couldn't, like, lift it up. It wasn't like this anymore. And, you know, it it turned out that this is actually a temporary condition a dog can have if it wags its tail too much. (laughs) He, He did recover. But I thought, wow, he had a great time there. And I had the picture to prove it, right? So I, uh, my partner and I actually uh, took this photograph and used it as, uh, as the, the main image in our Happy New Year card we send out every year. Have a, have a good run in 2019 or something. <laughs> So, you know, the, the, the opportunities to, to feel this state are there. And when you do feel it, when you do experience this attitude of mind, you know, it feels happy, joyful, uplifted, expansive, connected, generous, rejoicing. And there's often a sense of there's enoughness. So happiness is there externally because you're recognizing it, and it's there internally with an appreciation of the upside of things. So sometimes with this this is strong, you can almost feel like you're drafting or kiting on somebody else's happiness. So with this state, you know, the mind is kind of on board with it. You know, that phrase, you go girl. That's kind of like a mudita (laughs) phrase. You go girl. It's like, yeah, 
Do it. You got it going. Do it. So you're endorsing and ratifying somebody else's happiness, wishing for it to continue. And, you know, this can be a real kind of contact high experience where the sense of, of separation temporarily drops away. So looking at things that support mudita first, this quality, of course, metta is the first, you know, basic basic goodwill. And then gratitude and generosity. Generosity counteracts avarice, you know, this tendency of mind to be kind of like Garden the dish. Do you know what I mean by guarding the dish? I've been a uh, dog friend too long, I think. So sometimes with some dogs, they've got a thing about their food dish. You know, so if anybody gets close to their food dish, they can growl. They're territorial about it. They're protecting their stash, even if there's nothing in it. (laughs) It's just something about, you know, the thought of somebody, you know, getting involved with their stuff. So generosity, generosity counteracts avarice. And gratitude counteracts a feeling of shortage, the I don't have anything mind, the I don't get anything mind. Would, would you ever have guessed that actually the practice of the Brahma-viharas is considered to be the most difficult of the, practice of mudita is considered to be the most difficult of the four Brahma-viharas? Because it seems so happy, right? But you can see with this particular practice, the territory is that it covers really touches on things where the mind can be very uh, comparing, right? Comparing of our own experience with the, the real or imagined experience of others. So let me talk a little bit about that piece, the near and the far enemies of mudita. So the the near enemy, all of these Brahma-viharas have near and far enemies. The near enemy of mudita is sometimes called uh, overly exuberant. or as a former Fed chair would say, irrational exuberance. Okay, this is where one, like, takes it a few cranks too far. So an example of this would be, yes, your favorite soccer team or basketball team wins the big tournament, and everybody is happy, happy, and you're happy, happy for them, and everybody gets happy, and then it kind of, like, gets out of control and you know at some point there people are like you know swinging from street lights and turning over cars and you know or drinking you know too much champagne at the the wedding and then they have to take you home and put you in the bathtub and stuff like that <laughs> right you, you just get caught up it gets to be too much right and then it starts to become kind of out of control and unskillful and maybe a little bit unwholesome. So that, that's the near enemy. And the far enemy, where I'll talk about these uh, in some depth. So the far enemy, avarice, jealousy, envy, 
and the craving they, they come from. Somebody's getting something or something and the recognition stirs up a comparing mind or ill will or craving. And the mind may be competitive here and indulging in a shortage mentality. Have you ever had the experience of uh, have something something good happen that you're really like, oh, feel happy and uplifted by, and you make the mistake of saying this to someone and having them like, you know, shoot you down. I can remember uh, one point I was getting ready to go on a long retreat at the forest refuge, like for a year. And I ran into somebody that I knew in the post office and they said, hi, how are you doing? You know, where are you going? What's, what's up? And I said, well, I'm, I'm rushing around now because I'm getting ready to go on this year-long retreat. And um, the, the person uh, who was also kind of like around the larger uh, community said, the kitchen doesn't have enough natural light. <laughs> and I was a little like, huh? <laughs> Knowing that that would be the least of my problems <laughs> being there again. <laughs> So, you know, we, we share some tendencies with animals, right? So, you know, if you, if you look at what's going on in, in turkey land out there, you know, there's the, the some making the displays, and then there's the some ignoring them. <laughs> they're, not, they're not giving the mudita back. They're not saying, wow, that's a great array you've got there. <laughs> they're just like, oh, And the dude's over there. <laughs> we don't always get the acknowledgement we would like or the empathy, you know, the, the response that would lead us to feel connected. So, you know, and we're not so different from, you know, other animals and that, you know, we're competitive. We compete for resources. We compete for mates. We compete for status and uh, reputation and money. I think in a certain kind of way you could actually say that our current times probably prime us for more comparison with others and perhaps any other period. Because now we have all these means of... Uh, representing ourselves, right? Displaying ourselves on social media. They've, it's, they've somewhat fallen out of favor now, but um, the, the annual holiday letter that would go out do you remember, remember those, either writing them or getting them? And it's like, my oldest son, <laughs> Johnny, <laughs> yeah, got a full scholarship to Yale <laughs> after he had an internship at, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, and... My daughter is, you know, the winner of the national piano competition and, uh, you know, my dog won first place at Westminster. (laughs) But then, then, and this, you know, this happens on social media too, don't you think? I mean, you know, some people are are more authentic, but, you know, very often we, we show a particular face. 
Do you know that there's actually a, a software program now? You know about Instagram, right? Photographs, Instagram. Now there's one called Facetune. Facetune that's especially designed to allow you to uh, fix your facial issues, <laughs> real or imaginary. They're pretty much all imaginary. But, and when, you know, when you think about something like TikTok, you know, what is it? 60 seconds of self display. One of the most uh, cited uh, desired future careers for young people now, I'm talking about like high school, even middle school age now, is to be an influencer. To be an influencer. That that would be a vocation. So, you know, the value set right now is very much uh, supportive of this idea of inflation, inflation of the self, and needing, you know, to stand out and be noticed and be seen and be special and all the rest of that. How painful. You know, it's really not surprising that, you know, the flip side of that is like depression and feelings of lack of self-worth and you know, self-criticism and uh, all the rest of that. Yeah. Not not feeling like you have a place and that you're not good enough and all that stuff. So there, there's, a, there's a lot of external conditions that cause us to uh, feel insecure and like we don't have enough and we're not good enough and that person's got it and I don't have it. And yes, that person is completely beautiful with a 23-inch waist that actually is, you know, four sizes different from that, but they've, like, trimmed the photograph to make it look a certain way. So it's not that just that we have enough uh, images in our own mind about how we should be and how we want to be and all the rest of that. It's that we're literally seeing them represented all the time. So it's not, it's not easy to be young now. So can we, can we kind of break out of the shortage mentality of this mind that's always comparing itself to others? Well, the Buddha would say, talks about this quality of conceit. Same as, worse than, better than. And do you know at what point Conceit disappears from the mind in terms of the fetters. Let's put it this way it's at the tail end. Our hunt ship. So, is one of the last things to go. So, okay, we've got, got these minds that tend to do this. We see somebody's got something. I we see somebody is, you know, kind of getting getting to be friends with our friend. It's like, I don't want to lose my friend. What's she doing getting in there being friends with my friend? Painful. So, you know, the antidote to this tendency of mind is the, the cultivation of mudita. And in, in the process of practicing it, we actually do come into confrontation with these various kalesas, you know, these various forms of craving and, and aversion. And it can be, you know, painful. Because it's kind of embarrassing, isn't it? Have you ever had the experience of see, seeing something happen to somebody that you actually do approve of and care about, and something good happens, and inside you, there's like this inner 
You can own it. We know what minds are like here. <laughs> when I say you can own it, I don't mean like own it, own it. Because you don't own it. Because it's not self. But it can arise. It can arise and be painful and difficult. Because it you know, can feel kind of like petty. As if our uh, own resentment or disapproval is going to like... Uh, has any effect on any anything except our own happiness, right? Our own inner movement of the heart and resentment or envy, it doesn't do anything except make us feel bad. So here's some particular examples of how these states can come up, these difficult states can come up in the practice. Judgment about what makes somebody happy. You can see somebody's happy, but like what makes them happy, the mind just is like, oh, really? (laughs) Like there's this guy, uh, who once made a scale model of Manhattan, like complete scale model of all the buildings and streets and stuff, with matchsticks. And it took him five years to do it. Okay, it made him happy. Now, hearing about that, my mind goes, why would you do that? <laughs> okay? If you're going to spend five years, why wouldn't you do something else, you know, at least build a shed in your own backyard or something, right? But really, as long as it's wholesome, why not? You know, it's not like he's doing a bad thing or an unethical thing. You know, some people are happy living in Barrie, Massachusetts. You know, we're going to Branson to listen to country music or, um, you know, as long as there, there's not harm involved or do we need to uh, critique them in that kind of way and exp- uh, experience aversion ourselves because it's not something we would do? Okay, then there's uh, mana, which is the tendency of mind that's directed towards comparing. You know, what, what does he or she or they have compared to me? He's got more than me already. She doesn't need any more. Why should she get that? Does this sound familiar? It's like... They've already, they've already got enough money and now they just inherited money from his father and, you know, they've already... Then there's a jealousy, appre- apprehension of rivalry. So jealousy... If you want to know the difference between envy and jealousy, you remember back in your your grammar. So jealousy has more to do with like triangularization, right? I used to go out to, to lunch with this, with my friend. We'd go out to lunch every day. And now she started going out to lunch with, you know, this new person that came to work, right? So like a, a fear of loss of, of some connection or of being displaced. And of course, you know, and obviously in, in close friendships or romantic relationships, uh, this can be very toxic actually. Especially when it's not really going on except in our, our imagination. So dislike of the person, you know, 
If it's somebody you don't like, if there's an aversion towards the person, then it makes it hard to get on board with their happiness and good fortune. Because the Vedana, the thought of the person, the Vedana that arises in the mind is unpleasant right there. So here, often there's kind of like a a meta resistance to, you know, you, you don't really want them to be happy, let alone to have their happiness continue, which is the mudita phrase, right? Maybe you don't wish them harm, but or you maybe you don't want them to suffer, but being happy is like a like a bridge too far. <laughs> So then there's like the leveling instinct, competition, you know. You ever hear this phrase, she ain't all that? She ain't all that, you know. He ain't all that. I heard Oprah tell a great story once. It was so good. She talked about breaking up a relationship at one point and the person was leaving her and um, she was, you know, clinging on as, be- as best she could and, the- and he said to her, the problem with you, baby, is you think you're special and you're not. I would guess he, you know, revised his mind. <laughs> a little further on down the line. <laughs> but it's to Stedman's advantage there. So but so you know this is kind of like the crab in the bucket syndrome where you know the story about the crab in the bucket? <laughs> Apparently crabs when they're they're put in a, a bucket together. You know, one will start climbing on top of the pile of the others and will start climbing up the side of the bucket to get out. And then somebody will, somebody, one of them will, you know, grab and pull it down. And our minds can be like that. So then we have envy, which is kind of zero-sum thinking. So here we're coveting what somebody else has. Uh, Resentful comparison would be a way to put it. So I've got a couple good stories uh, uh, for this one. So at one point I was here on retreat and I was teaching, but I was like an assistant teacher. I was still, still in training. And all of a sudden, like in the middle of the, the retreat, we found out that there was going to be a wedding here. There's going to be a wedding. What? She said, there's going to be a wedding? Yes, it was going to be at the council house. And one of the dorms would have to be used for bridal prep. (laughs) And it was going to be going on. So, and and then in talking about this, uh, we're encouraged towards mudita at the thought of this couple marrying here because they're of different religions. And... Uh, the thought was, you know, since their religions are in conflict and neither one of them, you know, neither religion would marry them, that, of course, you know, here would be an appropriate place because they can't get married anywhere else. So, at that time, sitting in this very hall, and including me, were a number of people from the LGBTQ community, who had just lived through this process of petition in the state of California to revoke the marriage rights of uh, gay people. 
So it was legal for a while, and then the public voted it away. So these people are like sitting in the hall, like hearing this. These people are getting married here because they can't get married anyplace else. And they're thinking, I think they can. I'm the one that can't get married anyplace. Anyplace. So, you know, it was like a classic thing. It was like so totally, you know, the comment around it was so totally oblivious to the actual subjective experience that people were having in the hall, including some people in the group who actually had been married and their marriage was voided by this public vote. Now there's an opportunity to work with your stuff. (laughs) Because it was a classic situation where somebody was very publicly getting something that had just been taken away from you as a possibility. So I'm happy to say that we, we did rouse ourselves and practice with this. Right? But first, you know, you had to, had to go through the, the calaces of it all. You know, the feeling of over, being overlooked, the feeling of anger, the feeling it's not fair, the feeling it's, you know, depression, you know, despair, comparing uh, our experience to the experience of the others and not being seen and not being valued and, you know, like the whole, the whole trip. You can imagine. <laughs> it was a rather uh, vortex. But you know what? People did it. People practiced with it. And why? Why would you want to practice with that, that kind of situation? Because you don't want to suffer. You, you don't want to let what's happening externally control your inner experience. Because when the mind is not not willing to hold its ground in a certain kind of way. The mind is not willing to hold its ground and practice in a way that supports its opening and its development and its own empowerment. You're letting external circumstances set a set point for your own well-being. You're letting what someone else has that you don't have be a source of suffering for you. And why? Why would you do that? It would be a little bit like, you know, holding your breath and hoping somebody else dies. <laughs> so the, these Brahma-vihara practices are, are very, very powerful because they, they really challenge us very deeply at the level of what do you actually need relative to other people to be okay with your experience? Do you have to be moved into envy or anger or resistance or resentment when you recognize somebody else is having some good fortune or some happiness or ease? So you can see why this is described as a, as a hard practice, a challenging practice at times. But in fact, there are a lot of wholesome, happy things that we can recognize about people and learn to practice with this in increments. And this is a progressive practice just in the same way that the other, other Brahma-viharas are. You start where, it, where it's easy, and then you, you, an organic, you know, like me watching my mother, watching my uh, grandniece. You start where it's easy, and then you kind of put additional load on the system. You know how in strength training, you add weight, right? You start with a weight that you can do, you can work with, um, with some effort. 
You do that, the muscles get stronger, you add more weight. You work with that, the muscles get stronger. It's, a, it's the same idea with this Brahma v, Vihara practices, except they're, they're working on the uh, psycho-emotional level. So take, take a look at some of the things that, that you could use to cultivate this practice. So you've got like apparent relative health of body and mind you're seeing in somebody, or professional success, or ease of well-being, or wholesome aspects of someone's personality. You know, even people that, you know, you might not gravitate towards, that you might even have some resistance to. Can you recognize and acknowledge something about them that is good? You know, maybe somebody who's overcome some difficulty, you can have some kind of respect there for them, even if you don't organically feel like, you know, we'd be, you know, brother and sister (laughs) in another lifetime or something but you can find something worthy there. You know, maybe somebody has a network of friends and family. That's good. You know, there's something going on there relationally that that person must, you know, have some skill, good, uh, and some loyalty to people that it's that way. That's good that they have that. So, you know, this doesn't necessarily always have to be a big happiness that we're recognizing in others. It can just be like some. Some happiness, even if, if it doesn't last forever. Because, of course, it doesn't. And isn't that part of the poignancy? Like sometimes when I, when I see younger people, like, you know, people who are high school or college age, my mind will go, wow, look at them. They're like at their physical peak now. Their peak in terms of their health and how they appear. And they're so beautiful and they have no idea. <laughs> it's true, they think they look bad. It's like, oh, I am so look so terrible. Look at this, you know, my nose is too big for my face. Whatever, you know. <laughs> my arms are too spindly. So sometimes, you know, with this recognition of of what people's well-being or happiness or what they have, it can be po- kind of poignant, right? Because you know with the, wis- with the wisdom mind that this is conditioned and impermanent. So to me, sometimes like we'll blend in with with compassion and also with equanimity in the seeing of this. So just one last thing about mudita. So in recognizing the happiness, gladness, good fortune of others, well-being of others, there's one... uh, one bracket, one proviso, provided, as they say in the law. They tell you blah, 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 blah. And then they say provided. And then there's this like, oh, drop down thing <laughs> that uh, clarifies what they're, they're not saying or what's excluded from the up above. So in working with this, we're talking about... Um, Wholesome things. Wholesome. Not unwholesome things that someone has or is or does. Right? So why is that a proviso? So like um, having more money because you're not paying your child support, someone's not paying their child support, that would not be like a source of appropriate mudita. You know, having a, you know, 
half a billion dollar yacht because you're an oligarch who's, you know, plundered your country, that would not be like a mudita kind of situation. Or, uh, you know, may your nuclear weapons test go well, you know, this is not, right. So you got to keep it in the frame of the Eightfold Path and sila, and you know, that's the distinction between wholesome and unwholesome. Um, but even with people, you know, whose happiness is not wholesome or well-being or, you know, advantage is not, uh, cannot be framed in a wholesome manner, there's still maybe something about them that allows you to um, offer them mudita about something that is at least morally neutral. Now your minds are gone. Yeah, but why would I? Because <laughs> you've just described those kind of people. So th- these would obviously be in the difficult person category for you too, right? So it's interesting because when, when we have our own uh, set point in relationship to this, you know, where we're willing to offer mudita and where we're not, we're basically letting letting our internal experience be controlled. by our aversion to someone else. Isn't that interesting? Maybe, maybe we could have the Brahma Viharas or Mudita uh, available and part of our frame all the time, but we stop short because we don't want to give it to them. So there, there may be a sort of uh, natural justice <laughs> frame, you know, for us as uh, human human beings in a in a collective a collectivity. It's like, no, I'm not going to give it to that. Mm-mm-mm. Nope, not going to get it from me. But you have to remember, this is your own internal experience we're talking about, right? Your, your thoughts about another, unless they're acted on, are actually not doing probably much of anything for or against them. But this is your own internal experience that's being uh, shaped and colored by the mind's um, initial refu- refusal to go there. So you're letting somebody else's way of being create a stop point for you in terms of your own development. So it's just something to ponder. So as previously said, of course, we will train this progressively. So you start, you start where it's easy and organic, and you build up. And as far as the application and the other forms of the practice, you know, the Buddha talks at different places, different suttas, talks about gladdening the mind, gladdening the mind, making your own mind happy in this way ratifying happiness and well-being when you observe it in others. Happy, happy for no reason, happy for no reason except your observation of the happiness and well-being of somebody else. 
Now you're happy. I don't know. To me, that seems like kind of a, a good way to go about noticing. Let's put it that way. Okay. May the merit of our practice be a cause and condition of our own awakening and that of all beings everywhere. May all beings enjoy happiness and well-being and may we rejoice with them. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.